0: From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. By now, you're probably aware of what we do here. Put two completely different scientific researchers together and see what connections they can make. Sometimes those connections can be so good, we can't help wanting more than what just one episode will allow. So today on the show, we're giving you an entire episode of some of our favorite science matchups. That's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Melissa Roberts, sitting in for Matthew LaPlante.
1: Well, somebody has to arrange the matches. She might bring someone wonderful, someone interesting, and well-off, and important.
2: Matchmaker,
1: matchmaker, make me a match.
0: This is a show about scientific research, but it's also a show about making connections, a kind of scientific matchmaking, if you will. Now, we don't have any illusions about the kind of matchmaking we're doing here. It's about the research. Often, when we introduce two researchers at the end of our program, we have no idea what's going to happen next. Just as often, we find ourselves sitting back in our chairs at the end of a conversation and saying, wow, I cannot believe that worked. That feeling can be addicting. So, this week, we're dedicating an entire episode to some of the moments on Undiscipline that felt like scientific breakthroughs in their own right. When we talked about police and predators, lidar and space junk, mice and bees, and somehow our guests made a connection. First up today, the anthropologist and the aerospace engineer. Five. Remember February of 2018? Specifically, that magic moment when the world watched, enraptured, while a billionaire launched a Tesla Roadster into space? Well, in July of 2018, we talked to David Geller, one of the lucky aerospace engineers who gets to track down that Tesla Roadster and other space junk. Along with David Geller, we talked to Anna Cohen, an anthropologist who uses LiDAR technology to look for and map ancient cities. The two of them came from pretty different scientific backgrounds, but they both had one thing in common, searching.
3: Here's what I want to know. You are both working on new ways of searching for things, employing technology to solve problems and help us understand our world. How do we encourage young people across our globe to be seekers in a world in which it often feels like the answers are right at our fingertips? Anna, you want to tackle it first?
1: Well... One of the interesting ideas that has come about in science over the last few years is the idea of citizen science and democratizing knowledge and uh, making a lot of these ideas and technologies accessible to a broader population. And this is uh, certainly the case with uh, the widespread use of the internet, right? And um, in archaeology in particular, there's a really interesting program, um, and I'm sure there's many others, uh, that was put forth by a space archaeologist um, with Ted X prize money, and uh, she developed a program in which people can log in and identify using satellite imagery um, looting in parts of Egypt and parts of Peru. And so if you train people who aren't necessarily archaeologists or specialists in some of these technologies to use them on a very basic level, um, and then also be able to understand what these um, technologies can, can be useful for, um, for the purposes of cultural heritage, but, you know, other environmental degradation and things like that. This is a very interesting and unique opportunity uh, to get young people and people around the world who maybe aren't uh, in a university setting involved in some of these technological tools.
3: David, uh, the space community uses a lot of citizen science right there's a lot of people engaged in this way that's correct are there opportunities to use that to inspire uh young people to to search for answers using different techniques like like what you're doing
4: yeah i think i think a lot of that really is already in place you know nasa has a lot of a lot a lot of programs geared to the high school kids and the college kids to begin with giving them opportunities uh, to use telescopes to use computers. Uh, to explore the solar system, you know, and, and beyond. So I think some of that is already out there and available for the students.
3: What What would you advise uh, people to do to encourage d- d- other scientists? What do, what do you tell other scientists about how to get people excited about science?
4: Yeah. So I'm I'm, I'm a little biased here because I I've just uh, run two kids through high school and, and one that's still in high school, and I find that the, the success. The, the the path to success is to get these kids interested in, in uh, relevant current uh, ideas like if you're my son's in a chemistry class but they're not connecting the chemistry to the relevant technologies that are out there that need chemists to work on them. So I think that's the key to the teachers in the high schools and the college level. They have to make the materials that are kind of just educational. They need to show the relevance of it to what's actually going, out there, going on right now in the world. And then the kids get excited automatically, I think.
3: Do you see that in in your uh, your teaching and your research as well, that this, this opportunity to tie people, tie young people to – Uh, relevant science that's going on as opposed to just teaching them the history of whatever field they're looking at?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with David. Uh, In archaeology and anthropology in particular, there are so many things that studying past peoples and how they adapted to environmental conditions, for example, uh, how that can tell us uh, about how we should be adapting to different um, issues like climate changes. You know, if, if societies went through a drought, how can we study that from an archaeological perspective? And then how can we learn from that? So environment is just one major um, issue, uh, looking at um, inequality and class differences in the past. Uh, What were people's reactions? Um, There's a lot of inequality today in the world. So uh, what are we expecting that people's reactions are going to be today um, based on what happened in the past? How is it different today than in the past? How can we learn from that? So absolutely making um, my field in particular relevant to issues today is very important.
3: One of the things that I really uh, appreciate about having both of you in the room right now is the energy level, I feel is really, you guys are both really into what you do. How do you spread that? How do you make that contagious to, to other people?
1: Well, for me, it's very easy because I think archaeology is very exciting. Uh, and whether you're talking about lasers in the jungle, uh, there's always something in archaeology that seems to come out and make the news, especially these days. Um, or you're talking about a, you know, a tomb of some queen in Egypt, uh, or some other ancient hominin that has been found in Africa. Uh, it's pretty easy to use some of these uh, these science news clips to to show students how archaeology and science are changing constantly, and how they can be part of that. They can follow that, and they can uh, sort of engage in some of this literature.
3: What do you find is the thing that gets people most excited about
4: space, David? What's most excited about space? It, it has to be uh, uh, you know human exploration. I think that's the people who are in the area of who are in the space arena? Aeros- Want to be aerospace engineers? They're there because they are interested in the exploration, human exploration of space, going back to the moon and on to Mars to establish permanent presence at these in these places.
0: Next up today, the molecular geneticist and the entomological ecologist. At first, it might be hard to suss out what exactly a colony of genetically modified mice and one of the world's most beloved cowboy dolls have in common. In this case, it's one word, Andy. The connection between the work of researchers Joseph Wilson and Morella Fika may not be as simple as one word, but when we put the two of them together back in December, they still managed to find a whole lot to talk about.
3: Marilla, I'm wondering, as a geneticist, when you hear about previously undescribed species being identified, what must go through your mind?
2: To me, it's fascinating. Just the sheer number of species that you have found, and let alone that 10% of them have not been described before. It's mind-boggling. I'm fascinated. (laughs) Wonderful research.
5: Thanks. Your stuff is really cool, too. Genetically modified organisms is like science fiction to me, almost. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Joseph, I, you know, whenever I hear about bees, I'm probably very common in that to me, the beehives with the queen bee and the worker bee pops to mind. And then you hear it in the media all the time, how they're declining. The diseases and the parasites that the honeybees are suffering yeah. from. Do you think it's the same problem or similar problems in the wild bee population also, or don't we know it? that uh, point? We don't
5: know much, but wild bees are really different than honeybees. I often tell people mm-hmm. that honeybees are the black sheep of the bee world because they're just almost, almost totally different than all other bees. For example, in the United States, we have 4,000 different species of bees. One of those makes honey, and that's okay. the honeybee, which is from Europe. It's not from the United mm-hmm. States. And so all, all of the bees in Utah, all of the native bees to Utah don't live in huge colonies. They don't have a, a queen and workers. Bumblebees have small colonies with queens and workers, but they don't make a big honey, honey storage area for the wintertime. Most of the bees are solitary and most of them are ground nesting bees. So as a single female bee digs a hole in the ground and makes a nest. And so the, the parasite differences are largely because of some of those behavioral differences. When you live in a hive, a honeybee hive has 50,000 or more bees in that hive. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of interaction between those individuals, and parasites can get transferred around. When you're a solitary bee, and you don't interact with many other bees, you have different types of, of parasites, but often it's not a, a it doesn't transfer a
2: if parasites really were to wipe out the honeybee population and could the wild bee population jump in and rescue our food supply or do we still have to worry about them also declining because pesticides probably are not selective for honeybees they are probably killing all insects
5: yeah the, there's a, it's a it's a kind of a complicated question so pesticides are bad for insects in general But that being said, these wild bees are excellent pollinators. For example, um, some studies show in orchards, two mason bees, these wild solitary Mm -hmm. bees, two mason bees can do the same amount of pollination as 100 honeybees. So in some cases, these wild bees are, are way better pollinators. It's a mixed bag. The wild bees can and they do a lot of the pollination in our gardens, but... Because of our habitat modification and our large-scale agriculture, we've kind of eliminated their ability to pollinate some of those um, big, massive crops. If we could make some alterations to our agricultural system, the wild bees could pick up the slack, Um, probably. But we've mechanized it so much that it doesn't work. Can I ask you about your research a little bit? Oh, sure. I was wondering, are mice unique among mammals? in their metabolic pathway, or are humans unique among mammals in their ability to use niacin?
2: Oh, that's a very good question. There have been some studies using rats and you can get rats a little bit niacin deficient if you keep them on a very uh, special diet without niacin and with lots of gelatin or tryptophan, poor protein. But this is just a very temporary effect and then they seem to counter-regulate and fulfill their NAD needs with this poor diet as well. So there are variations in between the species. Mice were just the go-to model because that's where most biomedical research happens. Yeah. There are other species that very much need niacin in their diet like humans. I think dogs, if mm. my memory serves me right, would be in theory good models. But we don't want to yeah. have huge dog colonies to, to do this extensive biomedical studies. That makes sense.
5: I was also wondering, this is kind of a, a weird, different kind of question. Is this something you have to patent? Your 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 new mouse, you have to patent that so when people use it in their research, they have to go through through you?
2: Well, the mouse is not patented, I can tell you that. I think nowadays you cannot easily patent a mouse anymore. Yeah, it kind of seems in, like a weird thing. <laughs> I know there were times where people either did it or tried to do it, but I think nowadays you cannot just hmm. patent a mouse. But, you know, I'm not the patent yeah. lawyer here, so don't quote me on that. I don't know anything about it either. I was just wondering. But... Um, but we haven't even tried patenting the mouse mm. because it was a collaboration between so many institutes and even the mouse was produced with help from different institutes. I just thought it would be a logistical nightmare. I hope yeah. the dean is not going to kill me for <laughs> not patenting the mouse or at least trying to patent the well, mouse. Well, it seems
5: like it, to, it would move the science forward more quickly when it's more easily available.
2: Th- that's, that's my take on it. Honestly, I am in science because I like studying things. I like discovering new things. I'm not in it for the money. Let me
3: turn back to this question of speciation. Uh, Joseph, you were talking about using morphological characteristics to determine where a bee belongs on uh, the tree of life. But I was wondering, there's got to be genetic answers to this question too of speciation. Because in a lot of times, I mean, evolution can drive two species to look the same, act the
5: same, do the same sorts of things. But genetically, they may be quite a bit different. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of my velvet ant research is. Um, It's a big mimicry complex. And so different velvet ants that are dangerous have evolved to look just like each other so they can train predators to avoid them. And so we'll have two very distantly related species that look just the same.
3: Marilla, is there, mm-hmm. are there lessons that we can learn from the genomes of newly discovered insects? I mean, all of these are potential new model organisms, right?
2: Oh, yes. There are so many mo- model organisms out there. Usually coming from the classic genetics or at least the classic biomedical research area, we tend to focus on human, human cells, and mice. But actually, I think our thinking has to change a little bit in that model organisms might have benefits or advantages, depending on what the question is. A great model for heart diseases are actually pigs because they have pretty similar body size than humans, so they make a way better model than mice. It's just we're a little focused on certain model organisms because we know how to manipulate them. But I think we should really look at many more species and broaden our view a little bit in terms of we cannot only study where we ha- what we have the tools for, we should study what will eventually give us the answers.
3: And you're really interested in epigenetics. And if there's a great organism that really undergoes a lot of different expression and that changes the organism in some really substantial ways, it's bees.
2: I know. I know. I'm fascinated by the fact that they go through this complete metamorphosis. Though can you imagine those cells have the same DNA start to finish and they can just completely change everything. And I don't know if they are studied to a degree that they deserve. So I think it would be very cool to find out about
0: more models and like, like bees. Finally today, let's harken back to a discussion of police and predators.
2: Just what I
4: need it's a college boy. You haven't found one thing you like about me yet, you? Well, it's early yet. It's your degree? Sociology. Uh, sociology? Oh, you'll go far. If
0: you live, I intend to. In September of 2018, we talked to Dan McNulty and Shafali Pottle. Pottle's research offered some surprising insights into the way law enforcement officers see their jobs. McNulty's studies of wolves in Yellowstone helped give us a deeper appreciation for animal interactions in that park and in what he called a landscape of fear. Now, maybe you're smarter than me. Maybe you're already thinking about how much an organizational psychologist and an ecologist could find in common, besides the fact that Clint Eastwood and Dirty Harry might not be so impressed with their credentials. And I sincerely hope that, whatever you're thinking, this next segment proves you right.
3: So, Dan, you were listening as I chatted with Shafali about her examinations of how beliefs drive behavior. What did you want to ask her?
6: Well, you know, as I mentioned the life history of the organisms that I study, specifically their age, plays a big role in mediating the outcomes of the, the interactions between, in this case, predator and prey. And I'm just wondering, Shefali, how does specifically the, the age of the officers, how does that influence the outcome and the efficacy of policing, the effectiveness of policing? Does this age of the officer have a role in that?
7: Yeah, so that's a really interesting question, Dan. So I actually did not find any effects of age. Um, So that was definitely a statistical control in my data. And I didn't find for whatever, you know, criminal justice philosophies they had, whether more liberal or conservative, age actually did not play a role. Where I do find age playing a role, and I guess we could all relate to it, is when it comes to organizational change. When it comes to body cameras, so a lot of police agencies are implementing body cameras. There is a ton of resistance against body cameras, mainly from the more senior police officers who are very averse to new technology. But it's the younger recruits who are kind of growing up in an age of increased monitoring and increased scrutiny. So the effects of body cameras and the increased anxiety and apprehension that officers face are actually far more pronounced among more senior folks than it is from the younger recruits.
6: And do you have a sense of whether or not a a member of the public that a police officer interacts with, do they... Interact with that officer differently if it's say an older officer or a younger officer. Does that have any effect on 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 those interactions?
7: So I didn't code for the behavior of the citizen back. So like my body camera raiders were very much asked to rate only the officers. So I haven't looked at like I guess what you're asking for is for dyadic patterns mm-hmm. of behavior. And you know I don't I don't know if any other research kind of has looked into that either.
6: Okay.
3: Shafali, you were listening in while I was chatting with Dan. What were ideas that you came up with or questions that you wanted to ask?
7: Yeah, absolutely. Uh so Dan, so first of all, your your work is absolutely fascinating, and I never thought I would be talking to somebody from your field and actually find a lot of connections with it. So thank you to Matthew for drawing the connections. Right. Hooray. Um, this is what we do this yeah.
3: for.
7: <laughs> So your whole landscape of fear, So the thing that you you were mentioning about constant apprehension and feeling of fear. So that's actually what I find with the more empathetic police officers is that they're constantly feeling the sense of fear. Mm -hmm. Like they don't know when they're getting out and responding to a call. They're just continuously hesitating because they're just so fearful of making like the wrong move. And a lot of my, like, next kind of, like, research is trying to, like, figure out how do you decrease the sense of, like, fear and, you know, it's like what they're calling is the Ferguson effect, where police officers are less proactive. If they see somebody in danger, and especially if it comes from a minority community member, they just will not go above and beyond what their basic kind of job calls for. So what I was kind of interested in is you mentioned that these were GPS, um, but I'm curious if you're able to do like other like blood pressure, those kind of things that are signals of anxiety and whether the life expectancies of those elk who are more adaptive and more discerning of risk versus those elk who are just continuously fearful and whether those life expectancies differ.
6: Well, in this study, we only had 27 individual elk that were monitored, you know, from one to four years. And so really our sample size precluded making those sort of fine scale distinctions. And we, we did. We actually made an effort to look to see whether or not the older portion of that 27, whether they were more sensitive to a spatial variation in risk and and we just didn't find it and and part of that was just because we didn't have a very large sample and um, we didn't just we didn't see an age effect now since 2011 we've uh, been collaring more and more elk and we've been basically repeating this analysis that we did that's the subject of this particular paper and what's interesting with the, this more recent set of data is that we're not finding much of an effect of wolves at all, both in time and in space. And this is this is sort of some ongoing work, but one of the hypotheses is that, well, maybe it has something to do with the age structure of the sample. Maybe this the age distribution of the sample is is much younger. But that's really speculation at this point, because we haven't gotten to testing that yet. We're actually right in the process of analyzing those data now. But if I could just circle back and make one point or comment about What you mentioned about some officers being more fearful in the sort of ecological literature, animal ecology literature, there seems to be sort of an emerging consensus that the fear of a prey animal with respect to its predator has a lot to do with how predictable that predator is in time and space. The more unpredictable the predator is, the more fear the animal, the prey, will have because the prey isn't really sure, you know, where and when is that predator going to pop up. You know, with wolves, they're very predictable, as I said, in time. We know when they're active. We know when they're inactive, generally. Spatially, you know, they're a wide-ranging predator that can kind of show up anywhere, but not at any time. And so prey or sort of a, you know elk are, are ready for them at certain hours of the day. And so I'm wondering if with the police officers, if it's a similar situation. That, I mean, I can just imagine showing up at someone's doorstep and knocking on the door and, and being fearful just simply because I don't know who's going to answer the door and what kind of mood they're going to be in. I can, so at the unpredictability of policing, I can imagine, contributes mightily to fear. W- would you agree?
7: Yeah, absolutely. So actually, when I when I do interviews and I ask police officers, so what exactly does the public not understand about your job? They say exactly what you just said. They said that, like, for every call, they just have no idea what they're walking into. Right. When somebody calls 911, the pieces of information that they get are just basically kind of the location and like a little bit of a description of what's going on. Right. But you have no idea. Is it a hoax? You have no idea, I mean, the sad tragedy that happened in Dallas where it's an ambush, like they're calling just, you know, for, uh, to, to shoot cops. But these are all the realities that they have to deal with. And that's exactly what they say is that for every single call, it's completely unpredictable. So they are in a hyped up, mode because of that unpredictability and it's very difficult and I think this is where some agencies fail it's like you have to continuously train officers but a lot of agencies don't have the kind of resources to continuously put their officers through that kind of training but that's exactly right. It's like they're, they're walking into situations where they have to kind of assume the worst. You know, there are some people who say that, well, what if we train officers to not assume the worst and things like that? But then, you know, police officers kind of push back and saying, well, that's not the reality.
6: The fact that predators in the systems that I study are quite predictable in time and space, I think that's one reason why in these large animal systems, fear may not play the kind of role that a lot of Scientists and members of the public may think it plays in terms of driving ecological processes.
0: Unfortunately, that's all the scientific matchmaking we have time for today. We'll be back next week with our latest experiment, and we hope you'll join us then to see how it goes. If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is me, Alyssa Roberts. We recorded today's show from the lovely KCBW studios in Salt Lake City. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. Matthew Leplant will be back next week. Thanks for listening, and please go have big ideas.